वेलकम टू सिन टॉक दिन टॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द रिलीजन ऑफ ईटिंग विल थिंक अबाउट ईटिंग एंड फूड एंड इट्स कनेक्शन विद बिलीफ रियालिटी एंड अदर्स आर वी वॉट वी ईट वॉट डज दिस मीन what is the relationship between edibility and identity why do we derive so much meaning from food what role does taste play do our food preferences partially have a genetic basis how do prenatal and neonatal conditions weigh on the sense of self and food how do recipes and cuisines travel Why are only some food impure if everything is made by God? Must food be beautiful? Are we all born with the same gut biome and will we eat more and more of the world in the distant future? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Dr. Giriraj R. Chandak He is a physician scientist and works in the area of human and medical genetics. He is from CCMB in Hyderabad. Swami Narasimhananda, he is a monk of the Ramakrishna Mission and the editor of the journal Prabuddha Bharata. He works in the fields of Indian philosophy and religious studies. And Dr. Krishnendu Ray, he is a sociologist by training. and works on food consumption is from NYU in New York so krishnendu why don't we set the ball rolling with you um uh, having started wherever you did you've now spent quite a lot of time thinking about this um why don't we think about this question of what makes food meaningful why is it meaningful why does it why do we derive meaning from it why do we give meaning to it um what what's what's your take on this after having thought of it for a bit and obviously you know when one thinks of a question like that you have to kind of in a, in a sense contrast it with the others i mean somehow there is something very delectable charred exciting about it uh, so where are you on this so yeah it's um the most exciting thing about it is the food is that we consume it we take it we embody it uh and in doing that i think food allows us to think of uh, a our relationship with the outside world almost like nothing else almost like nothing else you can you can you can have a sense of your relationship to the material world your relationship to each other as human beings and the relationship of a species to other species and for me those are in some ways the anchoring parts of this uh, formation of identity because our identity is produced in some relationship of difference to others uh, including other species other things the difference between living things and and uh, dead things and in fact if you think about it most of our food is living matter uh, right. uh that has died so in some ways food becomes a site of everyday engagement almost like nothing else in the world and so hence it has the potential of illuminating all these relationships and obviously there are different kinds of foods and cuisines out there different kinds of food systems um are there different kinds of 
food philosophies, cosmologies altogether. I know. I think what you've just outlined sounds all right, mm. but would there be cultures, places, spaces where somehow it is something else? Now, obviously, biologically, we ingest food and does something to us. So I think one gets that, but at the level of meaning and sense making, is it? Are there different ways of thinking about it? Have Absolutely. people thought of it in different ways? So in some ways, think, let's think about an example like, say, uh, religion. Religion is one way in which uh, kind of our uh, questions of uh, philosophy, identity, uh, ethnicity often gets entangled. And one of the ways of thinking about it, say, Christianity. The, mm-hmm. I, I live in New York, where uh, uh, primarily uh, it's it's a kind of a Christian ecology uh, with this kind of a strong Jewish presence, for instance, and increasingly uh, Indians uh, and both Muslims and Hindus are becoming part of the community. So, for instance, one of the questions is, um, what is good to eat? And what is good to eat? What uh, is good to eat is a slightly different question from what is edible, or they're the same It question? is, in some ways, I think both are related questions. Right. Uh, the, the anthropologist uh, Claude Levi-Strauss said, food has to be uh, good to think with. Uh, because most human beings don't eat everything that's edible in their environment. So there's some process of cultural selection. And that is where, in some ways, culture meets nature. And you can see that where I would say amongst the major religions in the world, Christianity is a deeply omnivorous religion. In some ways, very clearly in Mark and Matthew, Christian texts make the argument uh, what what uh, uh, goes in is not that important, but what comes out. And it's making an argument vis-a-vis its Judaic predecessor, which has rules of what is kosher or kashrut rules, right? That you should not eat an animal uh, that is hoofed but does not chew the cud. That's how pigs uh, uh, get excluded. Of course, that's the same exclusions also in Islam, in Hinduism, exclusions develop in Jainism and Buddhism. So in some ways, in almost any of these worldviews, there's a sense of uh, kind of a selection and also a sense of uh, borders. This is what we eat. This is what they eat. And is this... A, uh... And, you know, I mean, you may or may not have thought of it in mm-hmm. historical terms, but is this kind of arbitrary and one thing led to another? It's more happenstance, like why are pigs in or out in one culture? Or, or you think there's a way of somehow nailing that into causal dynamics and what may or may not have happened? So there are two basic points of view on that. Uh, one is uh, by Mary Douglas, an anthropologist who makes the argument, th- these are arbitrary choices, but once the choice is made it makes a distinction between a believer and a non-believer. So the function of it, in fact, is to bound it, that you are with us or you are not with us. Uh, Other, like Marvin Harris, have argued there's a higher level of rationality. And the higher level of rationality, for instance, the pig taboo, he says, is linked to the reason is uh, environmental degradation in the Middle East, which is the context in which the Judaic uh, uh, religion emerges. And in that religion, it's a way to, in some ways, impo- uh, impose a restriction in consuming an omnivore who consumes like human beings. Pigs consume everything. Right. Okay, Pigs are omnivores like human beings are. Absolutely. Many Pigs, human beings are. Absolutely. And so this is, Marvin Harris says, this is a way of bringing in a higher level of rationality, which is to create a taboo. 
okay, which is often what, at least in pre-modern societies, in ways uh, food becomes regulated. And, and his argument is that the rationality is if a lot of people ate pigs and raised pigs in the Middle East, it would have led to devastating environmental consequences. And this was a way to, for society to protect itself. Right. So there are these two classification systems. That is, there's an internal logic there's uh, an external logic, which is that you shouldn't eat it because uh, it is, in some ways, uh, undermines the environment. By the way, Marvin Harris makes the same argument about the uh, uh, beef taboo in the Indian subcontinent, right. where where cows, uh, oxen are part of the traction force. Right. And in fact, there are, in some ways, the most vulnerable uh, kind of a commodity, capital power that is invested in agriculture. So to protect your traction power, uh, uh, you, in some ways, create a taboo. And that links to a very Freudian point of view, which is this. Wherever there is taboo means there is temptation. Yeah. There wouldn't be a taboo if there was no temptation. Yeah. So the temptation, say, when the when the monsoons failed, okay, would have been to consume the cow, yeah. okay, but to protect it for the next season, uh, the next monsoon when the rains returned. If you ate your cow, you have basically destroyed your traction power. So Marvin Harris says there's a deeper structural rationality to what looks like arbitrary uh, uh, moral choices. So but it looks arbitrary of... about 2,000 years later or 3,000 yes, years exactly. later. I think no, it, exactly. it may have. Mm -hmm. Where are you on this, Swamiji? This, uh, where does belief come into some of this? Uh, how would you or monks of your order or the traditions you belong to, what, what's there? How does one think about this question? To me, generally, the question of food, as uh, he, Krishna Hindu rightly pointed out, is uh, primarily the question of reality, how you grapple with reality how you as an individual understand reality. And so food, as I see it, as a religious person, as a monk, one chooses those food items which you feel are pure because there's a sense of purity integral to the question because of food. Because you, you assimilate it after all. Yeah, you assimilate. And I would like to point out that Shankaracharya, while Adi Shankaracharya, while commenting on the... Uh, on one mantra from the Chandogya Upanishad, he talks about ahara, that is the Sanskrit word for food. And he says, ahara shuddhau sattva shuddhi. That means the mind, which he refers to by the word sattva, becomes pure by the purification of your food. And there he doesn't limit the definition of food to only what we take, like what we generally understand as food. He says the entire environment, the thoughts, and everything is food. Anything so, we take in is food. Anything which you take in is food uh, from uh, through your all the sense organs or other arg organs. And that is important because uh, according to the Advaita worldview, all this universe is basically a product of ignorance. And because of this ignorance, we are repeatedly coming into the sansara, the cycle of transmigration, so to say, repeated birth and death. And by taking proper food, you are put in a position where you can understand this ignorance. So that's what Shankaracharya's position is. But if you can look at it this way, I also want to become a better person, better religious person. So I take something which is already sanctified or purified by being offered to God. So we have this idea of prasada, uh, mostly in South Asian religions. And also we have the 
concept of communion in Christianity, where you take the flesh and blood of uh, God or flesh and blood of Jesus Christ uh, through a wafer and uh, wine. So that is done so that you become purified yourself. But can can anything be purified via rituals and practices, or things are pure and impure ontologically? Um, now I'm sure there are many different traditions, and they say different yeah, things. Yeah. Then again, but, it all yeah. depends on the worldview. The um, um, for example, the worldview of Shankaracharya would say that everything is impure ontologically. Apart so, so for from, Shankara, everything would be impure. Yeah, because uh, only the state of Brahman, which is not an embodied state, only that is the pure state. All others are impure. But for a, but that includes uh, human beings. Everything, and, everything, like, everything that you world. see. If you see something that is false, and because it is false, it is impure. But that wouldn't go well at all with both Acharya Ramanuja or Madhvacharya, who have uh, not non-dualistic worldviews and they would say that no, this world is the creation of Ramanuja would say Lord Vishnu same Madhvacharya would say Lord Vishnu so I take something and make it pure so ontologically it is pure but somehow I have a aberration of thought I don't understand that it is pure so I offer it to Sri Krishna like you have the festival of Chapan Bhog in Brindavan where there are 56 items or 56 dishes of probably more than uh, one item. There are some duplicates. And you offer it because people who are poor, they don't get sanctified food because there is also a class privilege associated with sanctified food, access to religious rituals. So you offer it or there is this festival of Annakuta. You offer it and you distribute it among the underprivileged. So they get access at least once in a year or twice in a year to sanctified food and thereby they get access to purification of food and thereby purify themselves. How is food purified? What is the, what is what are the metaphysics of how that process is conceived or thought of? Yeah, what, so, I mean, uh, so uh, most of the South Asian religions, they deal with rituals in a way which is connected with the five elements, you know, earth, fire, water. So in every ritual process, particularly in the South Asian religions, if you see, all these five elements are involved. And through that, and also using incantations or mantras, the food is pure. So basically, it is more a kind of perception. The religious devotee perceives that the food has become pure. Because food is food. And also, <laughs> yeah, and also Ramanuja says that there are three kinds of impurities. One is the impurity of the food as it is, means the food might have been grown or cooked and there might be some impure particles. And also impurity in the sense that it is something which you ingest, so there could be some impurity. And also ashraya dosha. That means if the food is made by somebody whose mind was having not so good thoughts, harmful thoughts, then because of being in association with that person, that food becomes impure. So in most of the, again, South Asian religions... What do you do about the third? Yeah, all these impurities can be done away with so to say, their effects can be minimized or reduced or completely removed by having a kind of invocation before you take the food, before you eat the food. So you will see a lot of mantras going on before somebody actually eats food. Right, right. Now, Giriraj, great time to come to you because um, you're obviously a scientist. Um, at a surface level, one knows what food does. Um, but what I find very interesting in the way both Krishna Hindu and Swamiji described it is that 
there's a little bit of this inside outside self other kind of separation happening now obviously we've studied the neonatal um prenatal kind of stages quite a lot uh starting wherever we start all of us start out as being uh, very very young kids how does is there a way in which that that separation happens how does one know what is inside what is outside what is food what is not food it all starts with the mother so it's a great time to bring the mother in as well where are you on this i mean that's an interesting perspective um definitely the definition of food the way both krishnendu and swami ji said i think when the baby gets the food for the first time everything is pure because there is nothing you know that is done it's all sort of inside but the i would say that you mean if there when is the baby is in the womb that's right yeah right. and because everything that is filtered through the mother even if we imagine that mother is taking some sort of impure food in any way it is filtered through so many layers that finally what goes to the baby is would be a pure stuff and it is it also reflects on the mother's thoughts that whatever it transmits to the baby has to be in the purest form but i must say that as a biologist i haven't you know perceived in that sort of direction but the sort of impurification also starts immediately as soon as the baby comes into the world mm-hmm. and as uh, it's known that you know whenever the baby is born the mode of delivery of the baby if the baby is delivered say normal vaginally versus a cesarean section it is known that the baby's sort of i will introduce the term microbiome or the you know the bacterial population in the gut which actually metabolizes this food that is completely different and oh, that has completely different completely different i mean there are certain species that get enriched uh we also know that when the baby actually comes out it is that time that selection for many of these preferences also take place so some what, of what what sorts of preferences so uh, we we as i said that fetus is actually sort of an antigen in the mother's womb mm. and because it is you know surrounded by fluid and then it's so deep inside that no trauma can actually affect it but when we talk about this inside this protected environment and then coming out immediately there are several antigens which are then recognized by the baby and it is known the concept of self versus non self for the baby is actually established during the intrauterine period and subsequent few months after the after the delivery which means that if i haven't seen anything during my intrauterine stay it will all be treated by my system as a foreign thing and in fact that is the reason for many of these autoimmune diseases so what does that mean giriraj so if 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 when i was in my mother's womb and my mother ate whatever she ate brinjals then i know brinjals or at what level are you linking the two how how macro or micro how gross or subtle is it yeah. so i think that's a very good question actually i mean brinjal uh, we are not talking at that macro level actually sure. there will be very small fragments which will be recognized by the cellular machinery what i'm talking is a sort of that body recognizes that this is not something that is useful to me mm-hmm. and that actually if i say brinjal then there are many sort of proteins peptides or carbohydrates they actually are fragmented and the body makes them in such a form that the cells will be able to recognize that as a 
moiety. Now again, you know, body also has limited capacity. So it can't, it wouldn't try to recognize brinjal or tomato or onion. It would rather pick up a fragment of that particular component, which will be universal to many of these. And then it presents to the cell. Cell immediately knows that these are the components which will come from this, this, this. And that's how the body initiates the defense response. So your point, and I interrupted you there, your point is that depending on the mode of delivery, uh, one could be differently susceptible to autoimmune diseases because you were just not exposed to them at the time of time of birth, literally speaking. Yeah, so I think it may not have much correlation with autoimmune diseases per se. There are There is some evidence that there is gut microbiome is now, you know, associated with inflammatory bowel diseases also. The point I'm trying to make is that uh, actually there is a philosophical view also, as you know, that in the olden times, it was normal delivery and that was really, you know, promoted. There would be dyes and other people, even if in the uh, unsafe atmosphere, the baby will be delivered at home and normally through vaginal route. And the whole thing was that during that delivery, the the bacteria, the microbiome which have survived over a period of intrauterine stay, they are actually carried by the baby through the mouth and then they go and colonize the gut, which is not so when, you know, the there is a cesarean delivery or so. And we know that in old times, many of the babies would die because the facility for cesarean delivery was sort of not there. So, it's, so are we all born with the same gut microbiome or what is same and what is different? So that's again, you know, very interesting. It is, it is usually thought that every baby who is born is with a similar gut microbiome. But it also depends on the flora that is present in the in the intrauterine stage as well as in the vagina through which the baby will be delivered. This is the first kind of colonization. Subsequently, you know that baby survives on mother's milk for almost six months to one year. And it is these first four months during which the breastfeeding is compulsory. That time the baby suckles the nipple and from there again the second round of microbial colonization takes place. I of course didn't mention about the colostrum which is the first milk that the, the mother expresses. And I mean, right from old tradition, it is said that, you know, this milk must be given to the baby. And that's why even after cesarean section, the baby is immediately brought to the mother right. so that the baby can suckle that colostrum. So that's kind of fascinating, of course. Uh, here, and there's increasing work in, uh, in, in the developed world, for instance, that increasing allergies are a function of, in fact, uh, birth through C-section. So much so that WHO now recommends that C-section should not be done unless it's really necessary. Most C-sections in the U.S., for instance, or in Europe happens because of the convenience of the doctor and the family. It has nothing to do with the science of it. Okay, And so what that does is what we're beginning to realize is that that is shaping the microbiome in a way. For instance, most kids born in a C-section will get the microbiome of all the bad bacteria in an operation theater rather than in the birth canal, okay? And when you get that, because it's your microbiome that is sensitizing you to, in some ways, to recognize uh, friend and foe, okay? And so the hypersensitivity is linked to some of these processes, very high instances of C-section birth, which has nothing to do with the obstructed birth, which is where C-section is necessary. It is mostly driven by convenience. 
And the other part, which is an interesting question, which is the dominance of men in the medical profession, who for the long time, okay, the more interventionist medicine you do, A, you make more money, and two, you are in fact mostly unfamiliar with the female body. Correct. Okay? So more and more research is showing it is better to go back to, in fact, what we call traditional birth, which is good for the mother, very surely much better for the kid in terms of developing the immune system. And so much so that the FAO now argues that in most countries, we are way overdoing on C-section. So Giraj's no, point is terrific. But, but, the, but, the, but the, because this is eventually about food, and you know, which, is, which is in a sense about the microbiome. Now, is there something that is irreversibly lost or can, can, can one go back and tinker with the microbiome whenever one wants to? If I, if I want to change my microbiome to a very large extent, I don't know, I'm sure it's a complicated beast. Um, can I do it, or that's kind of lost fairly you to, soon? After... You have to implant poop. So, <laughs> yeah. so before I move, actually, I would like to caution also. You know, this microbiome field is relatively new. Right. So the last word hasn't yet been said, and as usual for any new thing, there is such an overexcitement that people start thinking. You worry about the hype cycle. Absolutely, yeah. I would really mm-hmm. like to caution. In fact, uh, one of my professors used to define microbiome that if you want to look for any association with microbiome, you would find it. And right. actually, that was few <laughs> years back, and now we know that allergy to obesity yeah. to cardiovascular to everything, it is there. Having said that, in last three, four years, research has really been very, very, you know, severely being done on this. What they say is that there is a core microbiome which every individual is born with. Now, we don't know what's the meaning of core microbiome, whether it is an individual's gut epithelium or secretions which enrich something that is focusing on that or there is the mother's microbiome which actually is allowing that to happen or it's some sort of selection which allows a certain amount of bacteria or certain types of bacteria to colonize. There have been some studies which have been done in you know inflammatory bowel disease, also in type 1 diabetes, obesity. People have seen in some cases there is a reversal for a reasonable amount of time, but many other individuals, the disease comes back. They go back. And that's, that actually means that, well, you were born with a susceptible microbiome and that's why, you know, although there were some changes, but your core microbiome actually comes back or so. But that, that sounds like bad news because so much is fixed at birth. Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 know, I maybe that's how it is. So then it doesn't matter what one thinks about it. But well, as I said that you know this is a double-edged sword. You know now as as Krishnendu pointed out that you have to really now there is a fecal transplantation. Be careful before you. Yeah, I yes, mentioned fecal that. So be careful before, before before you intervene. Yeah. What yeah. what according to you, Swamiji? I know this is not your area at all, but what is microbiome to you? What is this world inside us? In a yeah, way? microbiome, though, of course, of course it, is it is not my area. Yeah. But generally, people have general knowledge. But uh, microbiome, if we have to draw parallels from Indian philosophy, uh, every parent or every mother is passing on some kind of... The very fact that a person is coming in particular mother's womb, according to Indian philosophy, is because of one's karma the stock of actions and that karma decides that the a person stock of action. yeah uh, the f- result of the stock of actions so the karma decides that this particular family or this particular surrounding and environment is best suited for that particular action to take effect 
And so, if somebody is born in a mother's womb, it is because what you have done in your previous births. That's what Indian philosophy would like us to believe. And if that is the case, then this microbiome can so be some kind of a culmination of all the past. Now, microbiome <laughs> can be yeah, microbiome can be easily compared with samskara, what is called samskara. So why does somebody get a bad microbiome? Uh, and so that's probably that person has a bad samskara. Is it just <laughs> bad I, luck? Or can I, can I no, not bad luck. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know. Yeah. I, I, I know you didn't say bad luck. Hmm. So yeah, on a, on a lighter vein, I mean, then is it uh, is it the bad samskara of the mother that is passed on to the baby? And, and her mother and her mother exactly. and her father and yeah. her father and her environment. So, yeah, it's all connected. Yeah. It's all yes. connected. It's not just the samskara of the child. No, it's the samskar of the child. Of the child. But the but, but, I mean, but the samskar of the mother that she had to give birth to such a child. No, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to draw parallel with what I said and what you said. Mm. If I think that the, mother, the baby's microbiome is decided by the birth canal and uh, then it is actually the samskara of the mother that is you know transferring this mic bad microbiome to the to the baby according to indian philosophy no, no. according to the uh, indian philosophy what it will say is the mother's samskara decides or because of mother's samskara she passed on such a thing and okay. because of the baby baby samskara <laughs> okay. she was born in that womb okay. like that i i just had one question for uh, krishnan yeah so i mean with both of your discussion i i understood that there are religious practices and you know various other kind of practices which define the choice now to me food is as a source of energy and uh, i i mean if i am not getting enough energy from a particular food well i'm not sure whether i'll be able to survive on that or not and and since food is a long term choice so would you i mean i would like to know from krishnendu that uh, do you think that uh, food choice is dependent first on the energy or the requirement of whatever you know protein carbohydrate or anything or is it that your religion or your other practices That's the they would actually how determine. functional is it and yes. uh, yeah excellent question i think it's both so right. what it is in some ways obviously uh, a com a community of believers would end on a dead end if mm -hmm. they are consuming things that are counterproductive so in some ways there they, is a selectivity they just, they just wouldn't uh, survive so, they would survive die. and reproduce so yeah. yes for instance and one ex good example of it is our preference for sugar Right. Uh, which is a recognition of a quick source of energy and many argue in fact that sugar especially honey probably played a very substantial role in the early uh, development from ape to man for instance and so uh, of course now in today's society where we are guzzling coca cola uh, that itself becomes counterproductive right. right and so in some ways it becomes associated with chronic diseases so i think there is a material uh, uh, aspect of it and which today of course we scientifically call them macronutrients or micronutrients and they is macronutrients are often relatively easy to identify their impact micronutrient the causation pathway is depending on how complicated it is may be difficult to reach in a purely empirical kind of an empiricist way but on the other side of it you can of course get uh, uh, sugars and fats and proteins and vitamin c from lots of foods you I don't eat you don't eat all of them you will eat some of them so it goes through a i think there is a biological necessity and then there is 
a cultural filter associated with it because in a sense i see these as biocultural constructs no, okay no. because human beings are thinking in some ways animals okay yes. so we'll have to think which is why by the way we have different culinary cultures right that i don't come into this world uh, in in say in a bengali odia household and invent japanese food right there is a certain we are as heidegger would say we are thrown into a world that is already running that is already constituted okay so we absorb the rules of it its rules of inclusion and the rules of exclusion. exclusion some of them are productive some of them are unproductive okay and and that is the kind of fun engagement about it can i go back to one thing anecdotal which is kind of yes. beautiful my son was born with a strong preference for japanese food okay this is totally anecdotal and which is this comes brings back to this question of what happens in 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 the uterus sure. in utero and what happens outside and we totally uh, when my wife and i were just discovering japanese food uh uh when when uh, she was pregnant and so and we were totally surprised he comes out preferring japanese food and <laughs> even today ramen and sushi becomes his most preferred food okay though i have fed him enough indian food but his go to is and one of the, one of our hypotheses based on an n of 1 uh, is, <laughs> is that that must have been why he likes uh, japanese food because we were just discovering japanese food when in fact she and was we pregnant. we have an example in mythology i mean yes. abhimanyu's yes, example yes. is Abhimanyu very pertinent exactly. uh, now tell me the question is so there is obviously such a thing as nutrition when you think mm-hmm. of food it's not just culture and so on but are nutritional values and nutritional truths uh, culturally encoded as well or 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 what's happening there Oh, the other way to put it, which is a somewhat twisted way, is whether taste is a cultural matter. I think excellent question, and I think there's no complete final answer yet. Uh, the social science and the humanities-oriented work on taste is showing there are certain kinds of preferences, especially for macronutrients. Okay, and remember, and it's like it'll contextually it can be can that is can be a productive uh, selective choice or it can be an unproductive one. The very thing that made us robust is our preference for selection of sweet fruits. Right. Okay, so we were hunter gatherers, and for gathering people, it is very important to be able to recognize edible fruit right. uh, with its access to basically energy. Because remember, I mean, in some ways, in the transition from ape to man, there are three things going on. Right, one is our brains are becoming big, which means they are consuming a lot of energy, and we have to provide that energy. but our jaws are becoming smaller if you have ever looked at an ape and looked at us okay our jaws are much smaller for our brains and our guts are much smaller than what our brains require so it has to be that human beings in fact are much more biologically sensitive to solid kind of a, a nutrient and we also need energy intensive food coming right. energy intense absolutely energy intense and there is two at least a couple of forms of energy intensification one of them in fact is cooking Right. So there's a there's a, a, a archaeologist uh, uh, and uh, evolutionary uh, uh, anthropologist Richard Wrangham who has written a book called The Cooking Hypothesis. Mm-hmm. His argument is that it is cooking that allowed access to that energy that that our brains demand cannot survive without it but with a small jaw and a small gut but it's a hypothesis very early on we don't have enough substantial evidence for it so it's a kind of a fascinating question which is 
I think what you're partly pointing to is are all uh, uh, cultural modes of selection productive or unproductive? I think it's a mix of those things. Yeah, where are you on this, Giliraj? Yeah, I mean, a uh, very interesting point. Uh, you 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 made this example of you know brain versus the muscle versus the gut. Actually, there is a very strong evolutionary connection with this. Now you know that brain is essentially fat rich, and uh, yeah, and at apes needed certain type of teeth actually to you know chew the muscle out of these bones. So they are canines, and they are this muscle which is called masseter, which is the chewing kind of muscle that is so strong in them, but not so in the uh, human, human beings, beings right? Yeah. And there is clear cut evidence that whenever there is a period of hunger, at that time people would take food which will be carbohydrate, carbohydrate rich food, and convert it into fat and store it in the body. Now one of the ways it is said is that well actually this conversion to fat is essentially to help the brain do the job that it is supposed to do and rest of the other things is only to let the individual survive when absolutely is energy deficient. And in fact, I mean, one hypothesis which goes is the thrifty hypothesis, which mm -hmm. actually has said that everybody has gone through a phase of hunger, famine and others. And this is the way that they have survived. In fact, going one step further, it is said that this is why the diseases, the chronic diseases like diabetes and cardiovascular problems, they are so much high because during the period of famine and hunger, they, they you know, sort of uh, became swollen. And that so time, this phenomenon... metabolized oh, Yeah, at that time, the hormone insulin, that was sort of said to not to act on this. And now that whole period is gone and that state of insulin resistance still remains. So we develop diabetes and these diseases of cardiovascular. No, a, a, a related question, though, a different mm -hmm. question, Giriraj, is whether our food preferences are genetic. Now, I'm not linking this to our microbiome and so on, but whether it has some kind of a genetic basis. Now, a, a, a very hard line, maybe tricky, it's probably wrong and irresponsible. But is there, is is... You know, there are different parts of the world. I think uh, Krishna Hindu's son somehow ends up liking <laughs> Japanese food, and I think he has a hypothesis or two about that. But, you know, different parts of the world have different kinds of uh, flora and fauna around it. We eat different things. Now, has that somehow done something to what we are constitutionally? Yeah. So I think that, it's, as you rightly said, that it cannot be one line about this, that genetics is something. Which is why we're but, asking you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So I can, I mean, I, I, there are many examples of this, but as I said that this has to be related to some sort of a macronutrient stuff because it doesn't, because when remember, whenever we are talking about anything genetics, this is evolved with some selection process or so something that will be selected has to be advantageous to the individual. Now, I give example of this, you know, uh, lactase deficiency, you know. I'm just giving this example because this is very strongly genetically linked. And we know that if there is a lactase deficiency, then the individual cannot metabolize the milk. And there is a, this again is some populations have very high frequency of lactase deficiency. So I can give this example to indicate that if there is a genetic basis of metabolism of a particular macronutrient essentially, it is likely that that can indicate the 
genetic basis of the food preference or so but other than that i think uh, it's 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 extremely complex to you know just pinpoint it to genetics per se i can say that there are many you know drugs which are metabolized by you know specific enzymes and they also metabolize certain other products also and that can be one of the ways that you can say that well there is evidence that genetics can play a role in your choice of foods but largely i would say i i sure. think it's the environment which actually uh, sort of so supersedes you, you, you this you lean a lot more heavily on the environment at least at best epigenetics rather than hardcore genetics well again i mean epigenetics is also again a very genetics. serious <laughs> word i would say that it's your environment culture availability of food taste company I think all these factors would essentially, you know, understand those. Delighted to hear all of what you're saying, <laughs> Swamiji. Where are you on this? Because in a way, this is the universal particular question, right now. Whether it's so, the, as the I told you in the beginning, uh, and as Krishnendu started the conversation, rightly, I think in the right direction, because uh, food uh, is directly connected with our perception of reality, how we see the universe, what or as a theologian or a philosopher we put it, what is my connection with God or if there is God and what is my connection with myself and what is the connection with my other fellow living beings and the universe. And also, as he was saying, it's a biological choice, it's also a cultural choice, but the order need not be first biological preference and cultural because we do see there are practicing religious people who in times of fasting would rather die fasting than eating food even if they are hungry even they would not even seek medical assistance they would rather die because if you seek medical assistance you would have to ingest medicine but this they, is this is not fasting unto death you're talking no about. no no it is not fasting unto that it's just some fasting which they have to ritually do but they are ready to you know sacrifice their lives for that so it depends on the world view and the intensity and if the world view is like this body is anyway a product of ignorance as an advaita vedanti will say and also that this body doesn't matter because this whole universe does not matter as famously uh, sadhu might say jagat teen kal mein nahi hai that means neither in the past present or in the future the world does not exist it is because of maya so we have the example of vishwamitra who when he was in severe pangs of hunger he went and ingested dog meat which as a brahman he was not supposed to do because dog meat was supposed to be uh, eaten by only people who belong to the like lower caste of uh, or who were not who were parayas called chandalas mm. of society so then he says it doesn't matter because now i have to just preserve the body and why do i need the body to do spiritual austerity so that i understand who i really am so it again depends on the intensity with which you believe in a particular world view what is uh, you brought in this interesting notion of fasting swamiji why is there such a thing as fasting does it surprise you if, if we could have been sitting here today in this very same world without a notion like fasting is existing but somehow it's there in the world it's there as a practice it's there in different cultures yeah fasting again is what, a, is what, a, is, what a, is it is a kind of a, a modification of the idea of self mm-hmm. because self uh, the idea of self has the idea of body integral to it and so i fast because somehow i feel that i have ingested something which is impure and made by body impure so fasting is a penance it's like kind of a purification rite okay so but that's again a point a person even why people turn vegans so why you do they have experience 
you chisel your sense of the self via fasting no you you uh, make it a better receptacle for the grace of god because most of the traditions where there is fasting you will see that they believe in this divine grace so you make yourself like you wait for the lover in a different context gratitude. Yeah, yeah you wait for the lover you decorate yourself for the lover so you make yourself presentable so you make your body presentable so that god showers her or his grace upon you and that's the thing but there again even when that's why people turn vegan they become vegetarians or they become vegetarians they change their dietary preferences but there again if a person is okay and sees that this body is a inevitable obstacle in the process of human condition then that person doesn't bother about food so again again world view comes in i mean that's a very interesting thing and this is what we actually sort of believe uh, my perception is that um, uh, it, and that's my perception okay i mean i believe that the people older people were very wise and they actually linked this kind of food practices or the fasting habits and linked it to the religion or you know the kind of purity or sanctity because they probably realized that this is the only thing that is going to survive over centuries and centuries and centuries that is why you know we have ekadashis we have you know specific days for specific vratas which we actually call right but now uh, there is a biological evidence also coming up and very strongly in fact this all started with you know uh, alternate animal models like say see elegance this has been very elegantly shown that if you have a diet restriction then the longevity is increased mm-hmm. same thing is now come up in the mouse and the rat models where they have shown that if you have calorie restriction then actually you are prevented from suffering from these you know uh, pre diabetic kind of conditions so why so why? so yeah that's a very good question again so what they say is that your gut metabolome your gut microbiome your body's capability to metabolize the things it's going on 24 hours it's very important that it also gets rest that is one second is that when you are doing a calorie restriction you are not actually leaving out food you are only doing a a, a sort of redistribution of the calories in a different way and if fruits or vegetables and other things are used for a particular day they are digested much better and assimilated much better in addition we have many benefits of these kind of foods which actually take away the 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 oxidative stress and other things which is generated from the usual kind of food adding on to what girita said if you study the south asian festivals uh, it's interesting to note that the prasada given in different festivals they are basically a very good nutrient mixture of the seasonal foods so right. many times what happens is the underprivileged who don't have access to mm. that kind of food they get that food at least in those days or during those festivities and that also takes care as he said uh, in india or in south asia these dietary practices have been interwoven into religious rituals and practices so that uh, is uh, swami ji is eating thought of as an ethical question is it thought of as an ethical question because i think he mentioned a while ago krishna hindu that in a way everything we eat is living matter or it was just dead matter so, uh, can i jump in on that a bit like uh, think about this is kind of fascinating 
Because I think one is this question of appetite. Mm-hmm. Okay, because fa- I see fasting as part of a doublet, which is feasting. Okay, on and every society, every religion in the world has some structure of fasting and feasting. Right. Okay, and it's in some ways I think what you gestured towards. It's a sense of a calibration. Of appetite and its limits. Okay, right. that's kind of one aspect of it at an individual level. But I think also you see enough evidence across from South Asia uh, to Europe uh, to the Americas. There's also some relationship to questions of power and domination. Okay, you know. So, for instance, about and I think Swamiji uh, mentioned uh, the dispossessed. Okay, so there is also a kind of a relationship where uh, access to goods. Gives power in some ways, but also restraining okay access gives certain kind of a cultural power okay, and you see that getting played out in this question of where I think and and this is true in South Asia, this is true in other parts like say monks in the Western Christian order, where in some ways more things you give up okay you acquire more power cultural power. Okay, and that is a mode of governance. Okay, which is of course also linked to governmentality. Okay, and a forms of domination. So I don't think, in some ways, uh, uh, moving from the individual to the universal. I think there's an intermediate category of social groups, and groups can be. And remember, this is four of us in this room today talking. Uh, gender might bring in another kind of a relationship. Sure, because it's. I think some of it is masculine sense of, especially of elites, the thing that mind should triumph over matter, okay, is an elite perspective, I think, okay? And it's gendered in a particular way, I think, okay? So I think, so that itself, this question of appetite, which you brought up beautifully, okay? Feasting, fasting, restraint, and then, and how you acquire power in the social world is is a relationship that you see universally linked to between individual appetite and social power. Where, where, what do you think of restraint, uh, Swamiji? It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful segue, right? Because, again, it's very similar to that temptation taboo point you made a little while ago. Um, now, besides being a carrier of nutrients and so on, there is something about food which is... You know, for for uh... in religions across the world, or in faith traditions in general, also in practices what we nowadays call spiritual but not religious, the SBNR who like to call them none, <laughs> N-O-N-E, <laughs> not N-U-N. <laughs> so the, in all these things, you see the five senses; they are kind of considered a limitation on the human condition. So five senses are taking me away from my understanding of myself, my understanding of the universe, my understanding of God, and my relation with universe, myself, and God. Isn't it counterintuitive? Because one could have overindulged. Now we have these organs and, you know, one can eat more, taste more, take more of the world in, but somehow... It yeah, if I overindulge, like the path to understanding is doing less of it. That's what. If I overindulge, I am giving a free rein to the senses, and thereby right. I am letting them control me uh, rather than the opposite. So that's why you will see a practice of restraint. And food is something where all the five senses are involved. There right. is touch, there is smell, and so on and so forth. So that's why every person who likes to call oneself religious or spiritual may not affiliate to an organized religion would like to practice restraint of the five senses 
and because of that there is restraint of food and uh, the question which you were asking earlier is the question of eating an ethical one so the question itself is not an ethical one but how do you go about it right. that of course is uh, ethical there are so many questions of ethics attached there as he was pointing out in this room we are four male sitting here if there was a female there would have been of course a mother right and to a mother the primary concern or the uppermost concern in her mind is to feed the child and she would not bother about questions of ethics of food how it has been obtained or whether it is vegetarian or whether it is non vegetarian the first concern the prime concern would be to feed the child and so there again we see and also mothers somehow know sustainable ways of uh, procuring food and that again is a big question which krishnendu uh, indicated so here why this restraint in uh, matters of uh, eating because of restraining the five senses also there are some food items which people as communities avoid like if you see in vaishnava communities people who respect lord krishna generally they are vegetarians in the indian sense where you take dairy products and there most of their food will have a rich portion of ghee a clarified butter now that's interesting because ghee might uh, provide an alternative mode of nutrition of things which might not be probably available in a completely vegetarian diet so people somehow as he was saying people somehow find ways to include nutrients and also maintain their religious practices some kind of balance we we talked about mostly food as something which provides energy and that's the way we have been choosing the food practices does, and does food provide only energy that's what i was coming to that when we are when we are coming to food when we are coming to food we only are thinking about macronutrients because we need immediately them for energy we are talking about taste because that is what will allow us to have it and probably get it assimilated but food is also a vehicle for micronutrients and these micronutrients actually have a big regulatory role on the macronutrients so while we talk about macronutrients as carbohydrate sugar fat and other things which can, which actually decides the major practices like whether you will have non vegetarian food or say if you have vegetarian food then you must have something which provides you protein so your food should be some kind of dal rich or milk rich or something like that what i'm trying to say is that it's not only that but now the role of micronutrients is coming up in a big way are there practices around micronutrients so i mean micronutrients maybe religion will modify its practices and bring them in if they're not there but well i'm not sure about what religion says for sure but in last several i would say couple of decades the role of micronutrients has become very important think One about is, fruits hmm. and vegetable consumption yes. that's what it is and multiple color vegetables right yeah, yes is right. a signal of micronutrients yes. right mm. and i mean i would probably take an example to just indicate that how these practices have grown up over a period of time particularly if we take in india you know uh, there is a micronutrient which is vitamin b12 you know and vitamin b12 requirement per day is in micrograms say something like 2 micrograms or so 
when we were medical students we were just just told that oh don't don't think don't about it you know well. don't bother even you know because you have to bother <laughs> about vitamin a vitamin d or even if you have to bother bother about thiamine those kind of stuff you know i honestly at that time we were taught that b12 deficiency leads to two conditions pernicious anemia and some subacute combined degeneration of cord and in my whatever lifetime i haven't seen these cases you know <laughs> honestly and those hematologists who have seen they also say that well there is not a typical picture it's very difficult blah blah things over a period of time we now know that well b12 deficiency exists imagine a micronutrient whose requirement is 2 microgram per day 40 to 70% of indians are vitamin b12 deficient you you now, don't think it's a case of overdiagnosis today no not at all rather i would say now it's properly being diagnosed and you know what's the reason first of all i can change the syllabus a little right. bit yeah. first of all i mean you would then say that, oh what happened to pernicious anemia we are not even seeing those cases right but this is important that the micronutrients their requirement is not as per everybody every individual it can be variable for different populations secondly it may have different kind of functions you know so when we studied along with my you know clinical collaborators and others we found 40 to 70% individuals are b12 deficient and yet there is nothing but then what we found that it is direct effect of vitamin b12 which leads to irritation sleeplessness some neuromuscular problem more importantly it seems to be programming the future health of the individual just to give an example what we found that the mothers who had low b12 levels their kids were born more obese and insulin resistant now you all know that these two are the traits which are forerunner of development of diabetes right now imagine the mother's b12 levels not my own essentially mother's b12 levels that leads to such a phenotype at birth which then leads to an individual to future risk of diabetes and uh, cardiometabolic syndrome there are many other micronutrients like this there is zinc there is chromium i'm listening to you giriraj uh, it just feels like i should have taken way more care at birth <laughs> well <laughs> not you i guess your mother too like too like and further <laughs> just one yeah, line yeah, i would add further now it's coming up that it's not only your mother but it's your grandmother <laughs> her diet and others and this is where i was bringing the element of epigenetics yes. so if i talk about genetic risk of diabetes there are you know certain genes which say something which synthesizes insulin that that gene is dysfunctional or some problem is there that explains diabetes what is found is that even though you may have that genetic risk but your food can actually regulate the levels of that particular gene and which is what as you in the outset mentioned is epigenetics that's wonderful so epigenetics is something which your external environment can do to risk for chronic diseases mm. and last thing is that it is so exciting because your mind genetic constitution cannot be changed once we are born we are almost fixed with but it but the environment can but be. the environment can be environment. so now we are understanding that okay what my excessive physical what walking will thank do thank god for epigenetics as well <laughs> that's right yeah. but but again i would say that it's no more so much of a hype but it is still to get into real you know practice lots of studies are coming up and i'm quite sure that in few years it Wonderful. will be there also yeah i just wanted to go back to something yeah. i think swamiji pointed out to 
uh, was an example of what uh, what this uh, uh, French uh, uh, philosopher and sociologist Pierre Bourdieu calls embodied necessity. Okay, so people closer uh, to, in some ways, uh, uh, lower in a hierarchy, uh, uh, in a sense, are much more attuned to this embodied logic of embodied necessity than those at the higher up who can be high-minded, high-thinking, okay, can be far from thinking about eating, cooking. Why some of these things have not, for instance, have not been discussed, say, in the Western Academy. It has fallen out in the Western Academy because in some ways this was not the domain of high-minded, high-thinking. So in some ways, now with the, I would say with the end of modernity, and there's a serious doubt about it that these questions are coming back. Okay, and I'll just kind so of, these questions I know we're traveling west as it, opposed exactly. To, yeah. They're yeah. traveling west. Would you call the, that the question of food is not elitist? So in some ways, it's to begin a, with, it to was. begin with, you know, yeah. it got it fell out of. It used to be in the Western Academy, okay, but the uh, the idea of a developed uh, Western university, which was a German model, then got mimicked by the Americans at Johns Hopkins, which is first its first engineer uh, 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 president. Uh, food, especially anything that is preventative, fell out of the academy. Okay, no. in American medicine, in medical school, they don't teach nutrition at all. Yeah. So American doctors get trained with no idea of is 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 is, you know? is food medicine. So in in some way, that's the question about kind of that be. boundary between food and medicine, right? They're that, definitely not delinked. Absolutely, they're definitely not unrelated. Absolutely, yeah. and I would say here is kind of there's a beautiful, uh, of course, within the Western tradition. Also, there are like any tradition, there's a dominant tradition. There's also a subterranean tradition. Okay, right. there was this kind of Hispanic scholar, uh, Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz, who said, and this is a beautiful quote. She said. Is if Aristotle had cooked, he would have written a great deal more. <laughs> okay? So what she did was this counterpoint that it's not cooking versus thinking. Okay, in fact, it, if you cook, your ways of thinking also change. No okay? wonder you took up cooking. <laughs> exactly, and so that's kind of a, that embodied necessity is kind of a. I think in some ways, what we are seeing, as you said, is a return of questions. Of body, what about health, the techniques? Wellness. Uh, what about the techniques, Krishnendu? Because there's cooking and there's cooking and there's uh-huh. cooking, right? There are different ways of doing it. You steam, you fry, you blanch, you do this and that. Is there is there is there something interesting there? Very interesting. So, and and uh, anthropologists have kind of identified, for instance, to boil and steam, uh, you would need a container. You have to make a container. So often that comes later. Okay, Ooh. you would have ripe fruits. You would have, in some ways, open flame cooking. So there is a kind of a social history right. of craftsmanship has to develop to mm. a point so that now you can stew things, which right. is kind of a much more complicated. So that's one. The second important thing about it is also about think about gender and caste. Who are the people who are cooking? Yeah. Yes. Who are the people who are theorizing about it? Right. Why is it considered trivial? Yeah. Okay, it is considered trivial. Partly because of other than the ontological claims about it, philosophical claims about it, but also the cooking subject, right? Who is cooking? Who is cleaning? And that is an interesting story to tell. And uh, and I'm happy in that sense it is returning to be taken seriously enough, importantly enough, so that we begin to kind of uh, not assume that ah, these are trivial, quotidian, banal matters, but in fact linked to the questions we have been discussing today about spirituality, 
about health, about wellness, about meaning making as individuals, right? Yeah. How trivial, central, or marginal is uh, is this whole question of cooking, food, eating in general? Now, obviously, many traditions in Indian philosophy are quite high-minded, which is wonderful in its own way. But where where do some of these questions lie, Swamiji? Um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, as, do you have to go around looking for it and make a lot of take a lot of trouble? Or, yeah, yeah. Krishnendu, you know, as he rightly pointed out, it, it is a kind of a mixture of uh, who is cooking and also what kind of uh, worldview that culture in general across classes has. Uh, that's interesting because if you see elaborate cooking methods, uh, where do you find them? Um, South Asia is one place where you have to cook a particular dish and you are starting the cooking process, say, two days before. Uh, so it's an elaborate process. You you see some things like that in probably in Cantonese cooking and uh, in French cooking. So these are also places which have uh, given rise to intriguing philosophical schools and also spiritual practices. So You mean just the complexity of your drawing Exactly. So the process... The and these are also places which have led to elaborate systems of worship, elaborate systems of meditation. So the very process, we have the Japanese tea ceremony. So the process where the process is given important as a cultural phenomena, you will find invariably that the cooking is also taking a lot of time. And then the cooking, not only the ingredients. Uh, so there are some items in Japanese cooking, in French cuisine, and in many Indian cuisines, where you have to procure the item and it will be found only in a particular time in the year, etc. Having said that, um, some worldviews uh, in in uh, in South Asia, particularly of the Sanatana Dharma, taking a cue from the Chandogya Upanishad, where this boy who goes to the school and comes back and the father asks him, uh, Somya means a oh, good-looking one, that is his name is Shweta Ketu, he asks him, what did you learn? Then he, he looks very arrogant, as most of us look after we complete our university education. So he looks very <laughs> arrogant, and the father understands that he didn't get education proper. Then he asks him, did they teach you what cannot be thought of? Did they teach you how to think of what cannot be thought of, how to speak of what cannot be spoken of? etc. Then he thinks that his father has gone bonkers. Then he says, no, 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 nothing of that sort was thought to me. Then he starts teaching that. And then he tells him that mind is nothing but matter. So he says, how can that be? He said, okay, I will show it to you. You only live on a diet of water for 15 days. And then you will understand that mind is nothing but matter. Because then afterwards he says, oh, you read so many things. Now at the end of a fortnight on just watered night, tell me those things. He said, I cannot, I cannot construct a thought. So here there is an idea that everything is earthly. Right. And because food is earthly, we are just different permutation combinations of food. So right. food becomes suddenly central. Right. Mm. Right. Lovely. That's so interesting. So why don't we try and conclude with this? Where Where is this headed? Have you thought of that? Where is where are, where is all of this headed, Krishnendu? Food? Are, are we going to eat more and more? What's happening? Are, are, you, are you able to... I mean, that's the... Are you big, able to make predictions thousand years out, five hundred years out? Thousand years. Whatever, whatever, <laughs> wherever you are. 2050. I, I however think, far your mind goes. Yeah, and in terms of food systems, the big challenge is going to be the protein hunger, Right. And, and and China, India, as uh, standard of living are climbing, uh, uh, people generally demand more protein. Protein inflation. Where, where is yeah. that protein going to come from, 
right? Is it going to be vegetable protein? There's a fantastic range of vegetable proteins in the world. And we will probably have to depend on it because we cannot consume like Americans, especially like Americans, uh, and also like Europeans, the amount of uh, of protein and fat they consume, basically. You mean via meat and uh, so on? Basically, because the environmental cannot cannot sustain it. Okay, so that is the crucial question. Uh, and as I mean, populations are going to stabilize more or less. There are only two parts of the world now with the higher birth rate, sustainable birth rate, which is South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. But okay? do you see do you see the boundaries? And these boundaries have never been hard. But uh-huh. this is just to pose the question. Around specific cuisines, hardening, there are more hybrids coming along. Are there? I would say uh, looking at it from New York City. Monocultures. Yeah, looking at it from New York City, what you clearly see on the edges of the food system and food consumption system is a much stronger presence of uh, vegetables, uh, vegetable protein. There's a realization that the Western diet was unsustainable from the very beginning and it's become even more unsustainable now. So we might end up more like the Chinese, where in some ways proteins will be used to enhance flavor rather than eat huge hunks of proteins that the Western cuisine uh, uh, kind of has determined. Kind of that's one thing. The other big challenge in India, a lot of our protein is coming in through the dairy, partly because of the cultural construction. Sure. You know, and, and in, in India, the crisis, of course, is soda consumption. Right. Okay. And in some ways, this and which is which which was pointed out before, which is because we have a preference. All of us have nice little bellies because right. we have a preference to store that as fat. Okay. And and our body That's just is a starvation history of our exactly. And our bodies are particularly bad in recognizing in satiety signals about when you drink your calories. Basically, okay, and you don't know of, when you're done. <laughs> yeah, you don't know when you're done, and you kind of you can rarely you can become very obese by eating just solid food, right? Okay, in some ways. That's a so great point. So, kind of these are the kind of, and this is linked to the ecological crisis. And you think this protein hunger of. business is not really a biological requirement, but somehow it's just become a part of the way we live. It's a social. It's, it's, a, it's social a social world. It's it's upward mobility, uh, and 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 in some ways, I personally see. it kind of as we are moment of a deep crisis, okay? And some of us, not all of us, the poor in the world have done very little to damage the world. It's the rich and the powerful have done a lot. <laughs> They'll get okay? a chance soon. And they will get a chance <laughs> to change their habits now. Where is this headed, uh, uh, Giriraj? Where are we going? You can don your geneticist hat, the evolutionary hat, the biologist hat. Um, what... Whatever you know, the research around your your own work, what are this pointing towards, food-wise, eating habit-wise, and what's that doing to us? So I'll I'll put two hats actually. First is what you described, all geneticists, all combined one, and one will be personal hat as an individual. So first part, uh, whatever I have done work or I have seen around with my you know friends and collaborators and from literature and as Krishnendu also pointed out. There's a big crisis about food, availability of food and food choices. Uh, While everything is going around the protein hunger, but actually the availability of protein is a serious issue. And as I mean, something that Swamiji says that, you know, prevailing atmosphere or the worldview also comes into picture. Like say in India just now, it's not so easy to get the meat or, you know, get into the non-vegetarian food so easily. 
and uh, that's why alternatives like you know um, cell culture meat is coming up so right. there are you know you do the lab grown things there's a lab grown stuff or so and actually at our place also i mean through a through a sort of a, our own institute sponsored initiative we are doing some work to find this but the question again comes that how adaptable how you know receivable it will be we have no idea and how do you get micronutrients and all that and i'm absolutely sure i mean so so there's you were, so much of the environment that goes into our exactly, food exactly right? yeah. yeah so you were talking about is food a medicine or something i i was now there is a lot of stress i, I personally feel that there is a lot of uh, you know uh, i would say um, constructization of these things into one thing mm-hmm. you you know about the good and the virtues and that system very well but you are trying to create it in an artificial system so that people can take you know small bits of this this and be able to survive with that right and i mean i haven't talked about the micronutrients you know for which again you have to take specific foods like say if for example vitamin b12 that's largely of non vegetarian origin you know it's it's because of the microbes fermentation now how, what do the vegetarians do they take ghee you take ghee you take or you take fortified stuff or you you and certain things which are you know which vitamin b12 is rich that is not affordable by large number of people or you become friends with non vegetarian absolutely people. yeah so so that's the thing my personal perception is that i i i strongly am a, am a believer that you know our our older generations they were very wise they had figured a few things out they had figured few things out and i think the best part was that eat what you like digest it do activities that are required particularly physical activity and other thing and last but not the least is you should have good friends you should have a good family which allows you to have a stress free life so this is giraj's definition of food yes, everything yes. around you everything you take in so yes, that includes yes, yes. ambience you, friends ambience friends family i think that is what is the is the in fact i tell you there is a serial study of about uh, 50 years you know where certain friends who met at different points of time and they all found that the those who actually had families and friends they are the they best longer. they are the happiest yeah. i don't know uh, you can talk about happiest happy index and other things but they were the happiest right. so somebody said that oh what is new in it we always knew <laughs> this that if you are surrounded you're not happy you can always have soda well <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> i think the old wisdom is coming back and i think that uh, i strongly feel that you know food as a habit i mean it should have many components not just you know looking at the appearance or content or other thing that's wonderful where are we headed swami ji Uh, I l- think look, uh, look look out as much as you can. First of all, I I want to thank you for having this topic because <laughs> I think Krishnendu is the right person to say how less food as a phenomenon is talked of. Where we are talking about environment crisis, we are talking about energy audit. I think it is necessary to think about food uh, on at least a level on a par with energy. or even more than that because it's interesting to note that even so called developing economies waste so much of food almost which, 50% yeah yeah mm. so and and that that even in this neighborhood you have a party and see the garbage so much of food is wasted so just like we are talking about carbon footprint we are talking about energy audit there should be food audit and uh, only what i need i should consume 
or there is also I consume more then I end up consuming medicines I consuming healthcare <laughs> it's not just one thing it's all, it's all connected so yeah so the moderation and responsibility and understanding why do I what is the point these in, are your wishes Swamiji but yeah. where is the world going oh, yeah the world oh, is oh, going oh. crazy <laughs> the world is going crazy in imposing world you, views you are a monk so to you everything will look crazy but no no no, no. <laughs> not from a monastic prism not, not from a monastic prism that of course it's a very very crazy world but then world is going crazy because we everywhere we are becoming uh, narrowing down our uh, ideas and we are becoming so conservative we are becoming highly polarized and we are totally agree yeah yep. we are mm. uh, we are uh, uh, pushing down the others throats our world views and then yeah. the whole point as i uh, told you in the beginning as krishnendu also pointed out that this is food the question of food is all about the question of world view right and so why should i uh, impose my world view on some other person thereby imposing food other cultural practices so the world is heading i don't know where is it is it do you think of uh, this whole business of food and eating as a personal one or a social one because it's both it's both it's both and as uh, krishnendu said uh, when he was talking that food is also a very good means to govern yeah like i and it was done in history we see i as a ruler decide what food you will eat and somehow that is continuing in various forms so that is very crazy because the person um, uh, giriraj would say that person needs nutrition that is what that person needs but here we change it into social dynamics and it is not the individual but society and the world view a society or a nation projects that is given predominance over what that person or the baby needs right and so that is where we are headed right unless we do something about it urgently Terrific. I think that's a good, somber, reflective mood to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for Thank coming. You. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much.